Hello, everyone. It is time for the Seventh Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Thanks for joining us. And we're going to start off today with one of the more awkward pauses in recent TV news history. Are you African American? I don't. I don't understand the question. That, of course, was Rachel Dolezal, the then president of the Spokane, Washington chapter of the NAACP being called out on the question of her race by a local television reporter. Dolezal had uh, for years represented herself as black, but her parents had come forward just a few days before to say, nah-uh, she'd been faking it. She'd grown up a blonde and blue-eyed girl of northern European descent before she began working on her tan, getting a hair weave, and ginning up a new African-American backstory for herself. The media and uh, we, the public, were duly captivated by the revelations. Imagine that, we said, a white person masquerading as black. Who'd have thunk it? But uh, I now want to ask, in the sober hindsight of a couple weeks remove, whether we really should have been so shocked and scandalized. I mean, the Dolezal affair is just a new twist on a very old tale, the tale of racial passing in the USA. It is as old as the hills and as American as mock apple pie. And yes, well, Rachel Dolezal may have been playing cute when she said, I don't understand the question. Let's be fair. The question can be a lot more complicated than that gotcha moment with the TV news reporter suggested. And nothing renders the question of racial identity more questionable than a close consideration of the history of passing. Well, that is the subject of today's show, The History of Passing, by which I mean the more conventional variety, Black Americans Passing for White. We're going to be talking about it with the historian Allison Hobbs, the author of the recently published book, A Chosen Exile, A History of Racial Passing in American Life. The book opens with a poem entitled Passing by Langston Hughes, and we started by having Allison read it. On sunny summer Sunday afternoons in Harlem, when the air is one interminable ball game and grandma cannot get her gospel hymns from the saints of God and Christ on account of the Dodgers on the radio. On sunny Sunday afternoons when the kids look all new and far too clean to stay that way and Harlem has its washed and ironed and cleaned best out, the ones who've crossed the line to live downtown Miss you, Harlem of the bitter dream, since their dream has come true. Do you have any idea how many people in the history of the U.S. have moved downtown in that way? Unfortunately, there's really no way for us to estimate or quantify the number of people who passed as white because so many people who passed really didn't leave a trace. Do you have any guesses, Allison? You think it's in the thousands for sure or more? I would think it would be more, definitely, mm, yeah. Mm. And we're talking about people who permanently crossed over, right. uh, not people who temporarily, tactically, as you call it, exactly. passed for white just to um, just to take advantage of uh, the privilege afforded a white person for, for a time. Right. I mean, if we include the people who'd pass from nine to five or who pass just to work or who pass just to sit in a more comfortable seat at a restaurant or a movie theater, I mean, that would be 
very, very difficult to quantify given the number of people who were were able to pass either because they looked white or who were able to pass because of the, the circumstances. I mean, there are stories of people who really looked black, but because of their class position, because of their clothing, because of their comportment, they were able to pass. How long did you research this subject? I started researching this topic when I was in graduate school, um, so I spent over 10 years working on it. Passing is this act of sort of crossing a line, but the very fact that you can cross it, that a person who's supposedly black can pass for white, tells you very clearly that there really isn't a color line, a real color line. You know what I mean? It's a very strange and kind of dizzying concept. And like the more I contemplated it, reading your book, the more weird and disorienting it felt. I wonder how it was for you thinking about it and researching it all those years. Absolutely. I really enjoy studying this topic because I think it's a really helpful way of getting students to understand just how absurd racial categories are. It's one thing to teach students that race is a social construct and that race really doesn't have a lot of meaning and, you know, there's no biological significance to race, but it's another thing to show them the pictures of these families and these these individuals who passed and to explain how they were able to live as white. It really helps to kind of hit home just how illogical the category of, of race is. It made me wonder when the whole idea of a unified black identity came to be in American history. I'm assuming any slaves brought over from Africa thought of themselves primarily as belonging to whatever, you know, language group or tribe or ethnic group or, you know, village they came from, not as some kind of monolithic mass. Do you have any sense of when a sense of being an African-American first and foremost sort of coalesced in people? Interesting question. I mean, I would think that it probably began as the slave regime became hardened and as you had fewer and fewer indentured servants, you know, who would have been white servants who would have, you know, served out their indentures and then become free men. Now it was sort of like to be black meant to be a slave and to be white meant to be free. Now, of course, there was still a large free black population. But even still, most free blacks had one foot in the slave system, whether they had family members who were slaves or whether they had recently been freed or they were very close to the system of slavery, even if they were, they were free. So I think that it's sort of the coalescence of the slave system in the 1830s and 1840s that kind of creates this more cohesive black African-American identity. And then I would also say that another really important turning point is with the Plessy decision in 1896. Mm. What happens is Plessy is a very light-skinned African-American man. He identifies as being black, but he is one-eighth black, so he looks white. And his case is taken up by a number of equally light-skinned African-Americans, you know, wealthy men who live in New Orleans. And I think that there's a sense up until that point that perhaps the United States could become a tripartite racial regime, you know, where you could have whites and then you could have sort of what at that time would have been 
people who would have been referred to as mulattoes or mixed-race people to use today's language, and then blacks. But I think when Plessy loses his case, that's another moment where there's a sense that there's not going to be a distinction between wealthy or light-skinned African Americans and their, you know, darker-skinned brothers and sisters, but rather they're going to share the same lot. This is a Plessy versus Ferguson. Exactly. The yes. Supreme Court decision. Yep, it's the Supreme Court decision in 1896 that codifies racial segregation that separate but equal facilities are constitutional and it's seen as being the kind of legal beginning to the Jim Crow system, which then is in place until, you know, some people would say 1955, some people would say 1965, um, until the Civil Rights Movement, which is aptly called the Second Reconstruction. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, you're pointing to the fact that this strict definition of black and white really is a pretty recent phenomenon, and it took a lot of work, a lot of politics, and a lot of energy on the part of white supremacists, for instance, to kind of hammer out these definitions that they wanted to seem quite natural and that some people came to feel are natural. Uh, The whole biological definition of race is a fairly recent phenomenon. But you point to an earlier era, the 18th century, that you say was fluid, bustling, and multiracial. This is 18th century mid-Atlantic, the Atlantic seaboard in the United States. What was that world like? It was a bustling world. It was a world where people of all different Um, backgrounds and ethnicities and and races were interacting with each other. And it was largely because if we think about the Atlantic seaboard, it's largely port cities. So we can imagine that there are people that are coming in and out of that area who may be sailors, who may be slaves, who may be runaway slaves. And in that hustle and bustle, that they are able to present themselves as other than what they are legally categorized as. So a runaway slave would have the opportunity in a place like Wilmington or a place like New York, for sure, or a place like Baltimore to sort of allow him or herself to be taken as something other than a runaway slave. Maybe they're able to pass as a sailor, or maybe they're able to pass as a carpenter, or maybe they're able to pass in some other way based on an occupation, um, they still may look black, but we're talking about a period before those racial categories are really hardened. And we're not talking about slaves who are confined on plantations. We're talking about slaves who were allowed to, in many cases, to move around in these urban areas, right? Exactly. So escaping just meant sort of wandering off. Exactly. And that's a very important distinction. We often think about slavery as being kind of one monolithic form of labor, but there were numerous differences in the slave regime depending on location and certainly depending on whether we're talking about urban slavery or rural slavery on like a large plantation in Mississippi or South Carolina. And if you were a slave in Baltimore, for example, your master may have hired you out, meaning that you may have had a job um, away from your master, and that job may have lasted for several months, which would give you greater mobility, would give you the opportunity to be anonymous to a certain extent when you're traveling. Um, There was also opportunities to pass 
once you arrived at the, the new destination. And then there were also circumstances, if we think about places like Maryland, where the main crop was something like wheat, which was a seasonal crop. So in many cases, slaves were hired for a particular season. So in the era um, that we're talking about, you make the point that most of the passing wasn't necessarily passing as white. It was just passing as free. You could be a free black person. To change your identity just meant uh, going someplace where you weren't recognized as a slave or a former slave. Exactly. You know, we have such a simplistic picture, I think, now, when we look back. We think all African Americans were slaves, or all of their, right. their ancestors, not true. We think uh, there were strict racial lines always in America, but you're saying not true. Not all white people were free. And there were also, to mix things up further, there were black slave owners. You know, there were several thousand, apparently. And then, of course, there were Native Americans as well, who had a very complicated status in various places. How did passing change, though, as racial lines got more firmly drawn, as actually slavery's restrictions got a lot worse, right? I mean, a lot of people don't realize that slavery got much more severe, right, as time went on? Exactly, exactly. So essentially what happens is, and it sort of picks up on what I was saying about places like Maryland, where you have crops that are seasonal that don't require a large group of slaves. And essentially it became much more profitable for those slave owners to then sell their slaves to the South. Mm. And part of the reason why that also happens is the invention of the cotton gin makes cotton much more profitable. Yeah. But you need more and more mm -hmm. slaves um, pick the cotton. So slavery becomes much less profitable in the, the mid-Atlantic in places like Maryland um, and Delaware and even some areas of Virginia and it becomes much more profitable in places like South Carolina and Mississippi. And at that time, that's when the racial categories begin to really become much more firm. And largely that's because there's a real fear about the fact that in many places, like in South Carolina, slaves are actually outnumbering whites. So now there's a, a concern about making sure that we know who's enslaved and who's free and that the slave population is really under control because, of course, there's always this fear about slave revolts and about violence. When, when did the one-drop rule start being enforced, the idea that any amount of black ancestry made you black? The one-drop rule is much more recent than we think. It's really not until the 1920s that the one-drop rule really becomes part of our popular sense about race. Wow. And, right. And largely that. that's because, um, as I mentioned, in places like South Carolina where blacks are outnumbering whites, there's a tremendous amount of racial mixture. And over a couple of generations, there are a lot of people who identify themselves as white who actually have black ancestry. So there's a sense that while we have to keep racial categories clear and while we strongly believe in racial purity, we have to be very careful about not drawing the lines too <laughs> tightly because that might lead many people who identify as white to actually find out that they're not going to pass the test. Oh, so there's wow. a famous case in the 1830s where a judge in South Carolina says, 
you know, we have to be very careful about this because we'd much rather have one or two black people pass as white than to start kind of pulling at this ball of yarn and have our whole system come undone. Wow. You know, it surprises me about that is that they're acknowledging. Um, oh, yes. I would have thought they'd just lie about it. Right. <laughs> right. Well, I think in places like South Carolina, particularly when it came to the law, there was a sense of let's really be realistic about this and let's recognize that this population, like it or not, is very deeply mixed racially. Mm -hmm. Now, one thing that's very interesting that happens in Virginia is that once the one-drop rule is codified in the 1920s, really like 1924, there's a law that's passed, the Virginia Act to Preserve Racial Integrity, um, and it's that act that then says, you know, anyone with one drop of black blood is black. But even in that case, they do have what they call the Pocahontas exception, because there are white people who trace their ancestry back to the relationship between John Rolfe and Pocahontas, and they are saying, well, we still want to be considered white, even though we do have this relationship to Pocahontas, because we're very proud of that history and that ancestry. Um, but that would mean that they did not have entirely white blood. So there is this exception that's made for people who can trace their, their families back to Pocahontas. Mm. So the one-drop rule, which I thought was much older, is, is really quite recent. Was it, it was part of the eugenics movement? Exactly, exactly. It's part of the eugenics movement. It's part of this fear about white racial purity being polluted by not only the possibility of racial mixture with blacks, but also a kind of fear about the influx of immigrants, particularly immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe, and this real fear of what was called race suicide, which was a fear that the, the elite whites were not procreating at a fast enough rate, and that what was happening was that whites would actually end up being submerged, yeah. this sort of tide, this, this kind of you know, tidal wave of immigrants from Well, Southern. that sounds kind of familiar. It sounds very contemporary, <laughs> yes, actually. Well, that's one reason why I love studying history, because, you know, it's almost like nothing is truly new. The same language, the same kind of fears, the same kind of arguments seem to be made over and over again, you know. Right, right. Well, what's your theory, though? There are some moments in American history where people are particularly obsessive, neurotic, crazed by the idea of racial and ethnic preservation and purity, and others where, like you say, in like the 18th century, they seem to be a little more relaxed about it. So I think that we're always sort of swinging back and forth on a, on a pendulum, and I think that there are moments where we are very accepting, where we are much more relaxed, where we feel as though we've got this very strong sense of American values and American ideals and that those ideals and those values can absorb different groups, whether they be immigrants, whether they be, you know, African-Americans that we're not as concerned about racial mixture. Um, 
And then there's also that swing to the other side, which is that more rabid, extreme side that, that is very paranoid and very worried and very anxious about the threat of racial mixture. And I think that that happens over time. I mean, I think partly it has to do with economics, you know, that there are moments where you see this kind of sense of cosmopolitanism and this sense of inclusion where Americans are feeling economically more secure and that those moments of more extreme xenophobia kind of correspond to moments where we've had an economic downturn and where people are concerned about jobs and and status. But I think there's also just something that we just really can't entirely explain Mm. for why we're kind of always sort of moving back and forth on this sort of Mm. pendulum. You have a number of passing stories from various chapters in America's racial history. Going back to 1859, one of of my favorites from that era, if it's true, uh, I guess we probably will never know, you found in an old Philadelphia newspaper. This is the story of a slave trader known as Black Matt. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I did find that. I mean, that's what makes this topic so interesting is that, you know, you find these these really interesting stories. And and perhaps that story is not true, but I think that... It could have been. It certainly could have been. And the fact that it's printed in a newspaper means that it was reflecting a kind of fear or a belief that people of, of that time had. There was always this fear that people who were black could pass as white and that if it was possible for someone to look so white but yet to actually be black, then how could any white person really be safe? (laughs) Yeah, and what happens in this case is a slave who is light-skinned arranges on the sly to sell his master, who is slightly swarthy. And he tells the buyer, don't listen to this guy. He likes to say that he's white, but he's not. And he actually succeeds in selling his so-called white master, and he himself goes free. And this slave is known for having some swagger and for being able to kind of comport himself like a white man. And he's able to use his brilliance to then sell the trader and to get away to Europe, and no one knows what ended up happening to him. But I think that that story really points to a a, a real fear that Americans had in the 1840s and 1850s particularly, and a fear that abolitionists really played upon, which was that if there were people who were actually classified as black, but who looked so white that they could pass as white, well, then how would any white person be able to protect themselves from falling into slavery? Mm-hmm. And this became particularly worrisome when um, white Americans thought about their children. Hmm. Let's talk about the period after the Civil War, that short period uh, that a lot of America has completely forgotten actually happened, Reconstruction. And this is when the North, after defeating the South, tried to mandate better conditions for freed slaves giving them political power, the right to vote. And there was this short time where I think uh, you point out in South Carolina, for example, more than half the men elected to public office were black. You had congressmen, you had senators, you had at least one governor who were black. And that was all undone with a huge backlash from the whites. But can you give us a short synopsis of 
what a strange interlude that was for America? It's interesting that Reconstruction, I think, is one of the most fascinating periods in American history and also one of the, one of the most understudied periods. And yeah. I think part of the reason why it's so understudied is because it is so complicated. It happens in very different ways in each state. But I think that the key takeaway is that this is an incredibly hopeful moment. This is truly a moment where the idea of a kind of post-racial America seems possible. The entire period, though, is marred by violence. So there, there are riots, there are massacres. These are white riots. Right. I mean, against African Americans. Yeah. But at the same time, there are these very bright moments of possibility. So, for example, on the Sea Islands in South Carolina, there are blacks that were formerly enslaved that are now running the Sea Islands. Um, But then Andrew Johnson, who becomes president after Lincoln is assassinated, who is really, I would argue, the worst president in American history, Mm. um, who is incredibly racist, antagonistic towards free blacks, and who really pardons with great ease many of the ex-Confederates. So he allows the ex-Confederates to come back to places like the Sea Islands where blacks are actually working quite well and in a very independent fashion. And the freed blacks are arguing that what they really need for Reconstruction to work is land, that their freedom really hinges on having land. Many historians would argue that one of the greatest failures of Reconstruction is that freed men and women are not given land, and that if they had been, you know, if we think about it in a counterfactual way, that if if they had been given land, then that would have made all the difference. Forty acres and a mule. Right, exactly, exactly. Reconstruction has sort of been immortalized by people like D.W. Griffith with the movie uh, Birth of a Nation that comes out in 1915 that shows blacks as being kind of beasts who are completely unprepared for, for for their freedom and who are winning these political offices but who don't know how to comport themselves and they're drinking gin and eating chicken in Congress and putting their feet on the table and just have no manners whatsoever and really were better off as slaves. Um, so that becomes this picture that we have of Reconstruction, that it, that it's this, this nightmare period and that it's really um, a punishment for white Southerners. And that's really not the case at all. But as far as giving black Americans the equal rights and the full protections that was the intended outcome of Reconstruction, it was a failure and there was a massive backlash, the rise of the Klan, ultimately Jim Crow laws, all kinds of restrictive voting laws that took the vote away from large numbers of African Americans. So what was the psychological effect of being emancipated and having all these high hopes and returning to a really dark period again with lynchings and terrorism and complete abridgment of rights? Yeah, I think it was devastating. I mean, we can only imagine what it would have felt like to go from this moment of incredible hopefulness and optimism and excitement and anticipation where people were even changing their names to reflect the tenor of that moment to things like Deliverance Begin or using Friedman as their, as their last names um, 
to then moving into a period where they feel as though the federal government has completely turned its back on them. Uh, You know, to read some of the stories of black people passing as white from these earlier eras during the slavery times and immediately post-slavery is to sort of root for them. I mean, they're turning the tables, they're getting their freedom, they're challenging a color line that was designed to keep them down. But when did passing come to be seen more widely as kind of selling out, uh, crossing enemy lines, betraying your own people? Very interesting, because I, I actually was surprised that I did not find nearly as many accounts of people calling it a betrayal as I expected to. Oh, really? And okay. instead I found a lot of African Americans who were saying that they had some sympathy for those who passed as white because they understood how difficult life was as a black person, particularly during the Jim Crow era. I mean, certainly there's people throughout this whole period who probably would have argued that passing was a form of betrayal, but I think it's not until after the 1950s and certainly, you know, into the 1960s and into the period of civil rights and black is beautiful and black power, where passing as white Ah. really is, you know, very discordant with the kind of racial climate of of those periods. Uh If we look at the fiction novels going back to the 19th century, if we look at the fiction, it, it comes to be treated maybe not as a betrayal, but certainly as kind of tragic. Yes, exactly. So that also changes quite dramatically in terms of the fiction. So there's a sense, particularly in the late 19th century, that people who are able to pass are in this sort of like no man's land between blacks and whites and that they're not entirely accepted by blacks, but then they certainly aren't going to be accepted by whites. And they do appear to be these sort of tragic figures. And there's a lot of kind of melodrama in those stories where the question is kind of like, well, who will this person ever find who will love them and who they can marry? Um, and then often they fall in love with someone who they believe is actually white. And of course, that can't work out because they are actually black. But then in the last moments of the novel, it, it's unveiled that the person who they've fallen in love with is in fact black and that they can get married and that they can then be kind of race leaders and, and that they can work on behalf of, of their race. And that does have a long history, because if we think about something like Imitation of Life or Pinky, um, there's still this sense that the right thing to do is to come back to the race and work on behalf of the race, to, to advance the race. And those two, by the way, Imitation of Life, which was first a novel, I think in 1934, and then a movie around that same time, and then a remake in 1959, and Pinky, which I think came out in like 1949. Right. Those were stories written by white people. Yes, yes. And and what's very interesting with those, um, the films in particular, is that the 1936 version of Imitation of Life, which stars Freddie Washington, who was a very famous African-American singer, musician, um, a dancer, actress, She's one of the few African-Americans who plays a person who's passing. Um, In most of the films about passing, white actors are cast in the roles of the the people who are passing. And the argument was that by having a white actor, the film would create more sympathy and it would arouse more of the kind of 
sentiments of, of white audience members to sort of recognize, you know, how unjust racism was and how these racial categories really were illogical and unfair. And then also there were codes that the Motion Picture Association had in place that would not allow um, African Americans and, and white actors to share the stage at the same time or to share, you know, a frame in a, in a film at, at the same time or certainly not to kiss or to embrace. Um, so in the, the 1936 version of Imitation of Life, the woman who's passing, who's played by Freddie Washington, does not have a love interest. So there's oh, no wow. scene okay. with her and a boyfriend where yeah. there is a scene uh, in, in the 1959 remake with the woman who's passing, who then is played by a white actress. But you could have a white actor pretending to be black kissing another white actor. Exactly. But even then, there were tons of protests and a lot of outcry. And in places like Memphis and Atlanta, um, some of those films were banned. Do you have a favorite passing novel or movie? I think it's Pinky. I think that Pinky does a really interesting job in kind of turning some stereotypes on their heads. So there's the very interesting character of Pinky's grandmother, who's played by Ethel Waters, who at first glance you sort of expect to be a kind of conventional mammy figure, but then in fact she really isn't, and she really has much more intelligence and, and much more kind of savvy than, than you expect. And I think that the difficulties that Pinky goes through um, are really displayed surprisingly honestly and kind of openly in the film. So there's a scene where she's almost raped yes, in uh, fact, by white men. Yeah, well, yeah. She, she looks white. She's a young woman who looks white. And these young Southern men approach her and think she's white. They treat her with great respect. And as soon as they find out who her relatives are, that she's therefore black, they try to rape her. Exactly, Yeah. There are some scenes in that film that I think very vividly and very honestly sort of show what the racial climate was like at that time. Yeah, it, it is a pretty remarkable movie for its era, I think. There's virtually not a single good white person in the film. Right. Uh, and that must have been really hard for a lot of people to take in 1949. Right. Did you meet people who had passed uh, in the course of your research? I actually didn't. I did talk to a lot of people who had relatives and who knew of people who passed. I really was moved by the willingness of so many people to share their stories with me um, when they knew that I was working on this book. And once the book was published, you know, who also emailed me or wrote to me and said that they had had relatives or that they had just found out that they were actually black and that their family had sort of kept that from them. You had a relative. I did. I had a relative who grew up as a, a black child who was very much ensconced in the black community. And then when she was graduating from high school, her mother decided that she wanted her daughter to move to Los Angeles and pass as a white woman. And she felt that this was the very best thing that she could do for her daughter. Her daughter was very light-skinned. The whole family was, was quite light-skinned, but this daughter looked the most white. And so she moved to Los Angeles very much against her will. She does not want to leave behind her family and her friends and the only life that she's known. But 
as time goes by, she gets married and she has white children who don't know anything about her past. And then uh, she receives this very inconvenient phone call from her mother telling her that her father is dying and that she must come home immediately. And she tells her mother that she can't come home. She tells her mother that um, she's a white woman now and there's simply no turning back. There's nothing that she can do about it and that she, you know, she says to her mother, this is what you wanted for me and these are the consequences of that decision that now, you know, there's not just not possible for her to go back to the south side of Chicago, you know, that she had that she had left so many years ago. Now this distant relative of yours you're talking about Right. Um, she's no longer alive. Right. But were you able to track down her family and talk to them? I wasn't. And that I think that's the thing that really brought home for me just how painful this history is and how this history is such a history of loss. You know, we often think about passing as being a story of gain, that you're able to live in a better neighborhood or you're able to get a better job or you're able to protect yourself from these kinds of indignities that, that, that we've talked about, but that it really is a story of loss. And, and, you know, I mean, I feel a certain sense of loss myself in the fact that we have no idea what happened. This would have been in, like, the 1920s when she mm. passed, and after her brothers and sisters passed away in the 1960s, and, yeah, we, we, we lost, lost contact. Mm. So we don't know what happened. But that kind of story is what gave you the title for your book, A Chosen Exile, and why that Langston Hughes poem, Passing, leads off your book with that ending that says, The ones who cross the line to live downtown miss you, Harlem, of the bitter dream, since their dream has come true. There is, as we say, a long history of passing fiction in American literature and American movies. Going back to the 19th century in novels, you know, you talk about several. There's also Puddinhead Wilson by uh, Mark Twain. A black and a white baby are switched when they're right. young uh, yeah. in the cradle. The earliest one I'd ever read was the famous one, Autobiography of an Ex-Colored Man by right. James Weldon Johnson. I didn't realize that there were so many before that, like The House Behind the Cedars right. in 1900. The Garys and their friends. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I just wonder, um, what do you think the fascination is with these kinds of stories? Because obviously there is one. You know, I think that there's always going to be this sort of fascination with people who are able to pass, people who are able to move beyond the color line or cross over the color line, because we believe that race is so innate and it's so fixed and it's so and then this idea that someone could just walk into a white restaurant and have no problem whatsoever, you know, it, it, it kind of confounds us, but it also intrigues us. Um, and I think that that's why you have both black and white authors writing about it and being interested in it. And I think that it's, it's because race is such a crucible in our society. Um, I think if class had the same kind of heft and the same sort of emotional weight as race does, then I think we'd be much more interested in stories about people who pass as 
wealthier than they actually are. Uh, we in America have a fascination with those kinds of stories, too. I mean, we do. passing is a quintessentially American thing, isn't it? I mean, immigrants come to America and they have historically shed their ethnic identity sometimes to become just generic Americans, anglicize their surnames. Of course, people have pretended to be rich or poor, depending on the circumstances. We've got lots of stories about trading places in various ways. People alter their appearance, whether it's straightening their hair or getting surgery or things like that. You know, it's self-ingention. That's, that's the American dream, right? That's exactly right. And I, and, and I really stress in my introduction that my book is about racial passing, but that that is just a subset of a much larger phenomenon, and that there are so many different forms of passing, exactly as you said, that there's class passing, there's people who have passed as, as rich, there's people who have passed as poor, there's, people who, there's women who have passed as men, um, and some very interesting cases of women who passed as men to either serve in the army or to, um, to gain employment and occupations that were restricted to women. Um, there are gay men and women who have passed as straight. I mean, that the, the kind of permutations are really endless. But I think that the reason for the fixation and the fascination on black-to-white passing really has to do with the long and very complex history of race in the United States, which, which really is unique. If we look at other countries that have similar racial compositions like Jamaica or Brazil, the racial lines aren't quite as hardened as they are in the United States. For example, Brazil has, you know, hundreds of racial categories. Hmm. In Jamaica or in South Africa, even there's an idea of, of money being able to widen a person. Um, and in South Africa, during the years of apartheid, it was possible for some people who were classified as African or as colored to, to sue to actually gain entrance into, you know, a higher status racial category. And none of those things were possible in the United States. And that's because for so long we were such a binary racial system. You know, we were you were black or white. Well, even today, I mean, people who are biracial or multiracial are told that they should choose. This happens all the time. I remember when Tiger Woods first came on the scene, he described himself with some composite word that indicated his Native American, European American, African American, and Asian ancestry, and people weren't happy with that at all. Right. He called himself a, a Coblin Asian. Right. There you go. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I think really interesting how quickly times are changing in that I think that today we're moving into a, a very different historical moment where mixed race identities are being more accepted, you know, generally by American society. But you're exactly right that there still is a sense that you're either black or white. You know, I think that still does kind of permeate our understanding of racial identities. Does passing still happen in America? I think it absolutely does. I mean, I think it happens in very different ways, perhaps, than it did in the 1820s or the 1920s. But I think that whenever you are living in a society where there are certain advantages to a different identity than that which you are, 
and where certain categories are actually much more fluid in practice and reality than in theory, um, I think it can certainly still happen. I've really been thinking about this quite a bit with these you know, terrible cases of police brutality that have recently occurred. And there's a very interesting story that I heard of a white mother who was talking to her mixed-race son who looks white but identifies as black. And, and she was saying to him, you know, this is how you should comport yourself when you're with the police and make sure that you always, you know, follow their instructions and don't create any problems. And the son said to his mother, well, wouldn't I just pass? And, you know, it seems very interesting to think about how passing in this particular moment gains a new form of traction Mm. in a sense. Could save your life. Right, to save your life, which is exactly the way James Weldon Johnson describes the decision of the ex-colored man in 1912 that he's going to pass to save his life. He, he stumbles upon a lynching, and he's both horrified by the lynching, but then he also feels this great sense of sadness and disgust that black people are uh, treated in this manner, that, you know, as he says, that blacks are being treated worse than animals, and that, you know, certainly that there would be some sort of law to protect the burning alive of animals. Um, So he says that he feels both disgust and and some shame for being part of a race that's being treated this way. It's interesting how I think there are some some parallels given the kind of racial violence that we've seen very recently with the kind of racial violence that occurred in the the earlier part of the 20th century. Hmm. I looked at your website and I saw that you're working on another project. Uh, Want to tell us about that? So my next project is actually in some ways kind of inspired by my project on passing. Um, One thing that I really found sort of fascinating about the history of passing is the fact that people who decided to pass had to leave the area where they were known and Mm -hmm. move to a place where they could be anonymous. So the theme of migration becomes really critical to the history of passing, and that really got me very interested in migration and in the way that migration um, sort of forges new identities, changes one's identity, the difference between going from the south to the north. And I, I was noticing that there was quite a lot of material on the reasons why people left the south and kind of the conditions that unfolded once they were living in the north. But I didn't find as much about the actual journey from south to north and and what happened along the route and and how the route itself changed people and changed people's understandings of themselves. So my next project will be looking at migration and the concept of mobility and the ways that that concept shaped um, African-American identities. And you describe um, your plan to follow a book called The Negro Motorist Green Book? So there's a, a travel guide called the Green Book, which we could almost think about as a predecessor to today's Airbnb, which essentially was a way for African Americans to find places that would be safe for them to stay. During the 1920s through the 60s, really, and then, of course, afterwards, um, 
traveling was very dangerous for African Americans, and it's, it's a real sort of contrast to the way we think about travel in the American mythology, this idea of, you know, getting into your car and you're, you're an individual and you're free and the road is open and, you know, you can go wherever you want. Um, but for African Americans, it was very, very different. It, it was very frightening. It was very likely that you would get stopped by the police, that you could be humiliated by not being allowed to stay in a hotel or a motel, that you could face all kinds of indignities by not being able to use the bathroom at a gas station. So part of what I'm looking at is the realities of travel for African Americans and how they really differ from the way we sort of mythologize or kind of fantasize about um, traveling more more generally. That sounds and, like another great project, Allison, really. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. And yeah, I have been following the, the Green Guide, and it's a fascinating book. Um, it was created by a black postal worker who lived in Harlem, and he used his contacts with other postal workers to create this book that basically listed safe spaces for blacks to stop and get gas, to stop and get a haircut, to stay overnight, homes of African Americans who would allow travelers to stop and stay with them. Mm. Well, Allison, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Allison Hobbs is Assistant Professor of History at Stanford University and the author of A Chosen Exile, A History of Racial Passing in American Life. And uh, as luck would have it, that interview was recorded just before the biggest passing story in many a year broke into the news. And when it did, it seemed like a shame not to include it in this show. So I got back in touch with Allison Hobbs just a couple days ago to discuss it. Allison, you know, it's funny, in in the conversation that uh, I just played and that we recorded a few weeks ago, um, I was thinking of asking you about stories of white people passing for black, but we had so much other uh, stuff to cover, and I thought that's such a rare outlier of a situation, uh, I think I'll drop that from the list, you know? It just doesn't uh, fit in our time slot. And uh, here we are now, a couple of weeks after the revelations about Rachel Dolezal came out, and just to, to recap for our listeners, she is the now ex-president uh, of the Spokane, Washington chapter of the NAACP, who was outed as white, though she had claimed for some years to be black. She was um, exposed by her parents, who went to the media and said, wait a minute, we are pale-skinned people of German, Swedish, and Czech descent, and so is she, uh, and showed uh, some you know childhood photos of a blonde, blue-eyed kid. It turns out that Rachel uh, Dolezal had begun uh, getting interested in black culture uh, when she was young and at some point in her teens or 20s started increasingly identifying as black, went to a historically black college, Howard University, um, ended up teaching Africana studies. She married a black American, has a couple of boys who would be identified by many people as black. They're dark-skinned. And, you know, and in general, seem to identify pretty heavily with black, you know, social justice issues. But at some point started calling herself black and making up stories, including passing off a photo of a man who wasn't her father as her father. And then uh, her parents came forward. And there was also this interview on a Spokane uh, TV news station, KXLY, that began by talking about some... um, some racial threats from hate groups that she says she had received 
But then the uh, reporters surprised her with a question about her father. He showed her a photograph that she'd posted on her Facebook page of an African-American man. Is that your dad? Yeah, that's, that's my dad. This man right here is your father? Right there? Do you have a question about that? Yes, ma'am. Okay. I was wondering if, uh, <laughs> if your dad really is an African-American man. That's a very, I mean, I don't, I don't know what you're implying. Are you African-American? I don't, I don't understand the question of, I did tell you that, yes, that's my dad. And you, he was unable to come in January. Are your parents, not, are they white? I, I re, I re. So what happened there was Rachel Dolezal, when confronted with this fabrication that this man was her father, uh, and then asked about whether she was black, hemmed and hawed a little bit, and then, and then ran. Uh, right. Very excruciating to watch, actually. But I immediately, when I heard the story, thought, thought of you and your book. What, what were your thoughts when you heard about it? I really found this story to be fascinating in a number of ways. One, in that I really feel that she does see herself, that she does identify as being black. I think that's very authentic for her. Now, of course, for many other people, that's a lie, and that's very upsetting, and that creates a lot of anger because it feels as though she's appropriating black culture and that she's gained advantage from lying about her identity, and it's created a lot of anger and a lot of backlash and and kind of vitriol against her. Let's be clear that she did misrepresent, to put it nicely, or lie, to put it a little more bluntly, about details of her past. Right. Um, This man was not her biological father. In fact, there's been a lot of questions raised as to whether they even had a kind of surrogate father-daughter relationship. She told stories about having lived in a teepee as a child, which wasn't true, according to her parents. And told stories about living in South Africa, which were not true. Yeah, yeah. So there was a lot of blatant untruth in her story, which, you know, obviously dug her in deeper. And the moment when she was busted, I think that's why she just fled the interview. She later did say that, quote, challenging the construct of race is at the core of evolving human consciousness. And, of course, you and I talked in the interview we did earlier uh, about the fact that, you know, attempts to draw a very strict color line based on some incontrovertible criteria are always doomed because race is a very malleable concept. Right. And maybe Rachel Dolezal is right to point that out. But is it going too far for someone who has not a trace of African-American ancestry to say, I'm black, period? I think that's what makes this so confounding, that what she's pointing out to us is what we know and what we accept, which is that race is not biological, that it is a social construct. And she's saying that based on her experiences, she identifies as black. And when we really think about, well, what is race? It's experiences, it's behavior, it's cultural, it's, it's all of these things that are not based in biology. But what I think people are saying is that because her, her official racial designation based on American society standards would be white, 
some people are making the argument, well, she hasn't had the experiences of being a black person. So for that reason, she can't identify as black. And she could always walk away from a black identity whenever she would choose to. So many of her critics have said this is just sort of a mask or a costume or a cloak, and when she's tired of it, she could change her hair, she could change the way she speaks, she could change all these things about herself and easily become white again. Mm. Yeah, to uh, use a phrase coined by Jamel Bowie of uh, Slate.com in an article he wrote where he he actually mentioned your book, by the way. Yes. Uh, Maybe it was a la carte blackness, maybe appropriating certain parts of blackness uh, that she identified with, but always with the ability to uh, jettison them anytime she pleased. But, you know, I think for every argument that people make in this debate, I can come up with a a counterexample, and I could certainly point to people, some of whom I've interviewed, who come from multiracial backgrounds and who are racially ambiguous, who at some point in their life chose to identify as black, even if they were raised in purely white environments, identifying in their early life as white, and who said to me, it's up to the individual to choose. Um, And at that moment, I actually thought, because I'm a logical guy of asking an extreme reductio ad absurdum question, could I then choose to call myself black, even though I'm, as far as I know, you know, I have no black ancestors in recent history. I didn't ask that question, but now Rachel Dolezal is asking it for me. Right. And I think the point would be that, yes, you could. And part of the difficulty here is that historically, if a person who identified as white or who really looked white claimed that they were black, no one really challenged them because the idea was, well, if you're white, you would never choose to give up all of the advantages and all of the privileges of being white to be black. So you could simply say, well, I'm black, and people would believe you. And that's what happened in the case of a man named Clarence King, who was a famous geologist. He is the figure in Martha Sandweiss's book called Passing Strange, where she talks about how he passed as a black man because he fell in love with a black woman, and he essentially lived kind of a double life, at times as a white geologist and then at other times um, as a black uh, Pullman porter and, and, and steel worker. The point that I'm trying to make is that often when people make a decision to pass from a more privileged background to a less privileged background, fewer questions are asked. Though there is a long history of white people selectively, maybe a la carte, to use Jim Bowie's phrase, picking uh, bits and pieces of black culture or black identity for their own because they're is something attractive there, whether they're inspired by the black struggle and the nobility uh, of it, or whether they think there's a kind of glamour in black culture, it's cool, it's sexy. And there is this long history of, of white folks starting to identify with black people and think, you know, that blackness is this kind of 
it's this kind of thing on a sliding scale. You can have some of it or a lot of it. Even if you're white, you can you can participate in part of it, and you can distinguish yourself from other white folks, and even hold yourself above those generic, boring white people. You know, you came from. And this kind of thing, I think, in its most extreme form has been called, you know, blackface. Exactly, exactly. And I think that that's why there was so much anger um, directed towards Rachel Dolezal, because I think the question was, is that what she's doing? Is she taking the more, as you said, the sexier, more glamorous aspects of being black, including having a kind of exotic look, the way that she did her hair, I mean, including all of these these things and sort of appropriating these different aspects of black culture only for the kind of enjoyment or excitement of it. And I think that's what really angered people. It might have been Eldridge Cleaver who said that everyone wants to be black until the police show up. <laughs> There's also a, a book that, that's called Everything But the Burden. Well, to be fair to Rachel Dolezal, I haven't heard any aspect of uh, her story that says that she discarded her blackness every time she was pulled over right. by a cop or, or things got difficult. And one can certainly come up with stories of white people whose commitment to racial justice causes was not compromised at all and who even gave their lives up. Right. And so does that make them blacker? You know, I, I just I wonder who gets to decide in the end who's who's black and who's white. I think that is at the heart of this question, which is, well, who does get to make that decision? Who does get to say that that she's black or she's not black? What is blackness really based on? Is it just experience? Well, if it's just experience, she would argue that she has had those experiences. She would argue she's the mother of two black boys. So that's an experience of being a black woman, to have two black sons. Whereas other people would argue, well, no, that's not enough, because there again, um, you could still be white and have two black sons. Or you didn't have the experience of growing up as a black person and having that whole set of experiences that comes with growing up as a black person. But then we all know that everyone's experience is different. Right. And, and you know, like I said, I, I can come up with a counterexample uh, for every one of these situations. And another would be a person who does have black ancestry, but grew up in the lap of great privilege and never really right. experienced um, any of the downside of being black. And, and as rare as such people might sound, they exist. I've talked to some. So are they less black because exactly. they had wealth yeah. and privilege? I think, I think that's exactly right. And there was a, there was a very funny thing that, that, that um, became very popular on Twitter, and it was hashtag Ask Rachel. It was sort of like a multiple-choice quiz. It had to do with black song lyrics and movies, and, and it was sort of like, well, if you know the answer to these questions, then that makes you black. So, again, we come back to this question of, well, what does it really mean to be black, and who, who is the judge? Who gets to decide that? We're still struggling with that, and part of that struggle is simply because Blackness is a social construction. There is no definition. <laughs> a new term is entering the vocabulary as a result, I think, of this. It may have existed before, but I'd certainly never heard it. Transracialism, comparing Rachel Dolezal's 
identity switch to uh, transgendered people who are basically saying, you know, that uh, your definition of gender based on biology, based on genitalia is wrong. It's how you feel inside that defines your gender. Right. I think we have to be really careful about the language that we use. Um, Transracial for years has been a term that's been used to describe adoptions. So it's been used to describe a, a family of one race who adopts children of another race. So Rachel Dolezal was actually in a transracial family in the sense that her parents, who identify as white, adopted black children. I think that we would be better off using different language to describe sort of her experience. I think that there certainly are parallels to this idea of feeling that you have one identity on the inside that isn't necessarily reflected by your exterior, what the identity that you have on the outside. But I think we have to be really careful about comparing transracial, if we are to use that word, with transgender identities because the transgender community is under such attack right now, and they're often subjected to violence. There's so much transphobia. There's very high rates of suicide among transgender men and women that I think that the group is is so vulnerable that perhaps it's best not to make that comparison, but rather to to kind of come up with, with a different kind of language to describe the experience that someone like Rachel Dolezal is identifying with. Yeah, duly noted. And you're reminding me, of course, that I had heard the term transracial many times referring to adoption, but uh, had never heard of transracialism as describing a kind of identity ambivalence or or identity switching across races. Do you know uh, who uh, Trevor Noah is, the uh, the guy who's taking over for Jon Stewart on The Daily Show in a couple months? He had a one-man show in which he talked about coming from South Africa, a biracial man who I think would have been classified as colored under the old apartheid system, but coming to America and being really interested in in American blackness as being the most black you can possibly be and (laughs) and learning his chops, uh, learning how to talk and walk and do all the right things to be really black, having not grown up as purely black in South Africa. You know, Mm -hmm. because they do have this other category complicated by their own crazy racial history. Um, Is he transracial? I'm beginning to wonder (laughs) when he makes that switch. (laughs) Again, you know, I, I, I think that we're better off keeping the term transracial with its... Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Believe me, I'm not really asking that seriously, but okay. I'm just pointing to all the various ways in which identity is this thing that is composed both of external conditions and right. internal conditions. Uh, you know, all of this is reminding me, though, that uh, maybe a too logical approach to strict racial distinctions that were invented uh, for reasons other than logic is maybe a losing game. And we're all caught mm-hmm. up now dealing with the legacy of this twisted institution. And we still, even those of us who want to find our way out, are still tying ourselves in knots, trying to sort it out in ways that it could never be sorted out. I think that's exactly right. And I think that what the Rachel Dolezal case shows us is that 
as much as we've moved away from biological understandings of race, that in some ways we find that those ideas about race, those ideas about race being determined by biology, continue to come back to haunt us. And even if we do move away from biological understandings of race, that sometimes when we talk about race as being a social construct or being a cultural phenomenon, that those ideas can have the same degree of essentialism as biology does. And I think part of the reason for that is that often the notion of race as a social construct, it sounds too sort of ephemeral or make-believe. It, it has sort of an air of unreality. But then when we think about the way race actually functions in, in our society, we know it as being incredibly real. So do you think people should maybe go a little easier on Rachel Dolezal? I mean, there's been a lot of mockery and, um, and uh, pretty severe criticism. I really do. I really do. I think that the issue with Rachel Dolezal is that there are clear reasons why she's created a lot of anger. I think that she could have done herself a huge favor if when she was interviewed by Matt Lauer on the Today Show, if she had come out and said, I should not have said that I am black. I should have said that I identify as black, and here are the reasons why I identify as black. But I think that the real gift that she's given to our society is that she's opened a very lively, a very candid, um, and, a, and a very necessary conversation about race and racial identity in America. So I think that there's ways that this entire incident has been very helpful to Americans in thinking about racial identity and thinking about what does race actually mean and who gets to be the arbiter of identities and, and thinking about just how complex racial identity really is. Allison, have you had any thoughts about reaching out to her and talking to her? I would love to talk to her. I would, I would absolutely love to talk to her because I'm really fascinated by her and because I do feel some sympathy for her, and I think it does have to do with the fact that I've studied passing for so long, and I think I do sort of understand that there are a lot of real... Uh, it's a very painful experience. I mean, it's it's a very it's a very painful experience. It requires a, a, a major rupture with one's family, which we're seeing. You know, that was very common for blacks who passed as as white, and in her case, it is too. Um, clearly, she's estranged from her family. You know, obviously, passing as white and passing as black are very different things. Um, but I think we are still seeing some similarities. So I would be very interested in talking to her and really understanding more about how she um, sees herself, how she understands herself, and, and how she came to, 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 to the understanding that she has. Well, I hope you do manage to make the connection, because I would love to hear what you two talk about. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you, Allison, once again. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. Again, Allison Hobbs is the author of A Chosen Exile, A History of Racial Passing 
in American life. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly saying goodbye until next week. And we are always online at 7thAvenueProject.com.